If you know me well, or if you've been following my tweets, you know that I play a lot of Animal Crossing. If you've heard this song, it's probably because Animal Crossing has taken over the internet. This song is Bubblegum KK, and as much as it is a TikTok meme at this point, I like it a lot for the same reasons I like Animal Crossing as a franchise. It's cute, it's lovable, it's lighthearted, and I like this game so much I have spent 855 hours playing at the time of this recording. I also like it so much that I lead a double life on Twitter as a semi-successful Animal Crossing player, and I'm more active on that Twitter than I am on my main. And yet, there are some parts of that Twitter that still stress me out. Every day, I encounter tweets of racism, homophobia, and other attitudes that are just, well, predatory because it's a kids game and old men like luring kids in with the promise of giveaways and free items and you know just just really disgusting stuff right but there are also a lot of allies and a lot of people that i i obviously align with in principles but in like most woke internet spheres there can be a lot of infighting just this week there was an animal crossing fight about African-Americans getting mad at Filipinos for using the dark skin tone options in the game. They call it digital blackface. Or there are also debates on whether using Japanese items in the game is considered cultural appropriation. There's also a discussion of if in-game protests for BLM and etc. are good or bad. You know, the, the usual discussions that woke people have on Twitter. And because of all of this, I am deathly afraid of being cancelled. I once said I like cottagecore as the theme of my island, and cottagecore is when you use like forest elements to make your island look like a cottage village basically. And someone straight up said that I can't like cottagecore because I'm not black. And if I use cottagecore as my aesthetic, as someone who is a little bit more privileged, then what I'm actually doing is living a life as a hashindera and imagining myself with slaves, which obviously doesn't make sense. They accuse us of plantation core. Again, I don't know why, but who am I to argue, right? So yeah, as much as those issues are probably debatable in it of themselves, this episode is about cancel culture and everything else surrounding it. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Debatable with your hosts Nina and Kyle. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a bunch of things that's related to cancel culture. The first thing that we're going to talk about is how to even define it. So does it even exist? What even is it? I think it's interesting that we call it cancel culture rather than just call out culture or outrage culture and there are real differences between them. Some would argue they're just semantic differences but I like to think that the way that we use language matters. It'll be good to compare it to some other contexts in which we use the word cancelled. Like, you can cancel a magazine subscription, you can cancel a TV show. Basically, in those contexts, cancelled means you're no longer giving it money, you're no longer giving it a platform. And cancel culture is the same thing, but for people. You're no longer giving them money, you're no longer giving them relevance or airtime. And with both those contexts, there is a notion of permanence. Because it is very difficult to uncancel a TV show, the assumption being that reviving a show is an exception rather than the norm. When people hear that cancel culture involves a permanence of cancellation, some people say that it ruins lives. But is that really what happens? I don't really think that it's true that lives are being ruined. That's why it's just a notion of permanence is what I said. 
not actual permanence because if you are a person in power, you can't count on the fact that people get tired of being angry at the same person for a really long period of time. So like Nutri-Asia, we canceled them, we were very mad for a few months but they're still around. The same thing with Jollibee, they're still um, using contractual labor. Look at Louis C.K., he's still getting work. Trump is still in power, he's still getting work. So all these people that we've canceled most of the time, with some exceptions, but most of the time they're still around. Okay, but how about convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein? Can we consider his cancellation permanent because he was sentenced to jail now? Yeah, but Harvey Weinstein is a pretty bad example for conservatives to use. So like if they say cancel culture is real and permanent because they got Harvey Weinstein in jail, then they're saying that it's more important that you don't get annoyed by millennials than it is for rape victims to actually get justice. Yeah, so it's not as damaging as conservatives want you to think it is. Also, something that's different about cancel culture is how accessible it is as a platform. On one hand, you can argue that this gives a voice to those who otherwise would not get justice through normal means. For example, the justice system fails you or the police themselves are the ones committing injustices. But on the other hand, this reliance on social media can also have some negative externalities. One, it could make the public the arbitrators of justice, which isn't always a good thing and mob mentality can be bad especially when a lot of your public are DDS, for example. Or second, this may lessen incentives to strengthen measures already in place. Like, what's your incentive to go to courts if, for example, you can just cancel someone on Twitter? Of course, it's a weak argument when you're looking at macro-level institutions, but when you're looking at micro-level stuff like families and classrooms, then it, it might be a convincing argument. Third, is it makes people feel content just making something go viral without actually dealing with the issues at hand. A lot of people now get justice when they're heard or retweeted or followed, and that may not be healthy for like the mental health of these people in the long run. And lastly, it makes it likely for fake accusations to exist, and therefore also diminishes the believability of actual call-out posts. The false accusations point is sometimes used in really disgusting ways. So a couple years ago, there was this short called Virgin Marie where a child describes how her father sexually abused her and it was revealed at the end that it was all some sort of lie made up by the child and her mom and it was a rehearsal for a testimony and the caption said something like children lie, which is just, you know, big yikes. So yes, there was some backlash, obviously, but people rushed to defend the director, Daryl Yap, saying, Yeah, that's mob mentality, eh. And the problem with this is, number one, most of the time, people just don't have a real reason to make stuff up. Like, we don't have any reasons to make false accusations, most of the time. But second, maybe if many people accuse the same person of the same thing or the same pattern of behavior, it's probably not exactly completely false in the same way that if a bunch of people all reported independently that the bus was late for a few minutes on this particular day, then it's probably not the case that it was a lie, right? But more importantly, I think people who say this, like, oh, it's mob mentality, a lot of them do bad jobs of denying their guilt. Many of them use something called a negative pregnant, which is basically a technique in rhetoric when someone denies only an incident of a particular claim, but not the claim itself, not the main point. So if I say, hey, Daryl Yap, didn't you make pedophilic tweets recently? Daryl Yap will say, no, I did it in 2016, not recently. But the denial doesn't disprove the point that he makes pedophilic tweets, like masarap ang bata. So 
the, the point isn't the point was never that he did it recently it was the fact that he did it in general you know and another example is university of central florida professor charles negi was being cancelled for his past sexual harassment and racist behavior, he replied, This is a witch hunt. This is politically inconvenient because my presence in the university is politically convenient. Complaints are being solicited from people. And I'm just like, so what? Even if all of those things were true, those things don't really matter. None of them have anything to do with the heart of the matter, which is that you are being racist, you're being like a bad person. You know, like a lot of people fall into these traps when they're trying to make non-apologies. The point of conservatives here is that cancel culture does not mean justice for victims, but actually just means destroying people. But there are five responses to this, right? The first would be obviously it's a spectrum. Not a lot of people will lie just to get attention, and a lot of people have genuine concerns that they're trying to raise, and that's why they go to Twitter to try to quote unquote cancel persons. But really, they're probably just calling them out for their behavior. Two, even if lies can happen, a vast majority of the audience would still directly decide how to believe the situation, and most of the time they'll decide right. Like, there was an instance with UPLB, right? Where Defend UPLB gave themselves a death threat. And even if people know that that was wrong, it did not diminish the credibility of legitimate death threats that were being posted by that page. Third response is, even if there are lies, the internet is very self-correcting, right? Most of the movement also condemns false accusations. So people were immediately condemning Amber Heard when they discovered that her accusations against Johnny Depp were false. And this is a trend that often happens if there are instances of fake accusations. And fourth, there is also external correction. You can try them if ever it really is false and it goes out of hand. Because harassment allegations don't usually end up on Twitter, at least they shouldn't, which allows for those innocent to prove themselves in court. Of course, this isn't a foolproof argument, especially when you consider that courts don't usually side with people of color, but it allows for some instances of self-correction if it does get to that point. And five, and the last response would be, obviously, there's still an aspect of weighing. We'd rather believe a potential liar than a potential rapist, and we, it's better to just side with caution, and it's better to always believe until there's reason not to. There's also the issue of subjectivity, and allow me to rant about this a little bit. The question now is, how tolerant should we be of different points of view? Because some conservatives argue that free speech should be respected, we should always be tolerant, and if we're intolerant of intolerance, then we're being hypocritical because we're also being intolerant. So this is called the paradox of intolerance, and this is something that Karl Popper argued for. That freedom demands a tolerant society, but if we're too tolerant, then it allows for an extreme ideology to exist in the free society that can destroy that tolerance. So in order to protect tolerance, you have to be intolerant of intolerance. But is that true? Is Karl Popper correct? Because if it is, some would argue that it means that it's okay to be bigoted in some instances. If we define bigotry to be being intolerant of a particular point of view, then this would definitely be considered bigoted. And further, it would say that, you know what, if you want to define bigot that way, then fine, I'm bigoted. But at least my bigotry's purpose is to 
expand the rights of the marginalized, to protect democracy, not to destroy people, not to be racist, etc. So we make a hierarchy for bigotry. And this is like the even if. Like, even if you call us bigots, even if you call us hypocrites, it's fine. Because some forms of bigotry are better than others. And this isn't really an invalid way to argue. I respect a lot of people who make this argument. But on the other hand, some also say that you can't be utilitarian about things like rights. If speech is free, it should be free of all speech. But you can rebut that by saying free speech doesn't really exist in a vacuum, right? You can't just say protect all speech when some of that speech threatens other rights. Even if we're being principled about it, if speech poses a clear and present danger to the rights of others, then it should be restricted. But then again, on the other hand, I would still argue that all speech could be protected. Like, you can say that, okay, let's not have libel laws, let's not have hate speech. That's okay, that's defensible in my opinion. In fact, a lot of debate motions are about that particular topic. But if this is what you're saying, that we shouldn't have any laws that regulate speech, then it's not a strong argument against cancel culture. Because cancel culture is also a part of free speech, right? Um, Brendan O'Neill, far-right podcaster, said it's okay to criticize bigots. The problem is, when they get financially punished for their views being boycotted for their exercise of, free of freedom of speech. But Brendan saying boycott them is a part of free speech too. And I think it's very interesting because the same people who defend big corporations donating millions to politicians because money is free speech are now saying that progressives can't withhold money from people they don't agree with. So the question now is, what do they really want? Are they saying that money is free speech or are they saying that free speech isn't? This brings us to another discussion on proportionality. How much cancellation is okay and when should it be done? So the first instance I want to bring up is probably the heart evangelista problem that was trending a few weeks ago, right? So it was a situation where heart evangelista was posting herself wearing luxury goods and basically branded stuff like Gucci, Louis Vuitton, whatever else brands there are. And she was highlighting how her new life is using these products as her PPE and etc. And a lot of people were canceling her online and calling her insensitive and basically eat the rich, etc. etc. But did her tone deafness really merit people canceling her to the point where she should be the first to be in the guillotine, right? Um, I, I have my own thoughts on this and I think as much as I agree to some points that people were making online, I think it went a little bit too far. Because if you look at it, if her flexing was insensitive in it of itself, then we should all be cancelled for posting photos of our homemade bread or posting ourselves in our homes having comfortable lives, right? Why is it that only showing off something after you're above a certain level of income is suddenly worthy of cancellation when almost all things people proudly post as their coping mechanisms for quarantine are things that are also inaccessible to a lot of people as well, like playing video games or baking or doing things that require stable internet, for example. Obviously, there could be a fine line here, but I don't think I've seen arguments online that sufficiently prove this point. Another thing I was thinking about was like, was it really even her fault that she was born rich? Like, what do we expect people to do in those situations? Like, okay, yes, we can probably expect John Krasinski to donate all of his profit from selling some good news, especially since he sold the show to a massive corporation who had enough money to buy the show for CBS News, but somehow... CBS didn't have enough money to keep its workers. But what about Heart Evangelista? Like, this is more of a gray area. What can she do? 
What do we expect her to do, even? Eat her grandparents, and then her parents, and then herself, just so that she can eat the rich? Ito si Vico nga. But, but we like Vico, don't we? Like, look. So cute. Nagalit siya sa condo owner because the condo owner was being so makulit. Kakasabi niya lang daw. Nakasawa sila sa welfare program, di ba? So cute. Let's forget the fact that the condo owner probably was looked over by a welfare program before and that's the reason why he or she was repeating the same questions over and over again, right? So let, let's forget about that because we like him, right? So I think our outrage Especially when it comes to the the heart evangelista problem with like she's being insensitive or tone deaf, I think that our outrage is at best applied unevenly based on factors outside of merit. We often impose some unreasonable burden on some people, especially since in the case of heart, she was trying to help. She's a potential ally. So should we really be trying to alienate her? Okay, but but I do understand people who are strongly against her post as well. Uh, I can even argue, though I personally don't believe it, that calling her out is a valid form of criticism towards the extravagant lifestyle she has that can be channeled towards other things. Or at least this level of extravagance should not come in the form of super fancy PPEs when people on the sidelines and people who need PPEs the most don't even have the capabilities of affording the most basic one, right? But again, saying she should die by a guillotine and should be eaten first it's probably a bit too much, yeah. But, you know, potential allies should also be called out if necessary, and that's my belief. Being a potential ally should not mean they are immune to being evil just because they donate X amount. And that's why I think it's still valid that we're able to call out Heart Evangelista. Because if that was the case, and being able to donate X amount was the standard to be immune from criticism then Manny Pacquiao should be immune from criticism as well, or Jeff Bezos, because they donate so much money, right? Again, though, this is very subjective, and as much as there are valid points on both sides, I think that there are instances where people really just take it too far. I guess now a question would be, do we need to be proportional? Because I am biased that we should be proportional, because otherwise, in my, in my view, it's just not real justice. But on the other hand, I do agree that when it comes right down to it, we should prioritize the needs of the people who are oppressed than those who are part of the ruling class. I, I just wish that it wasn't an either-or scenario, but I understand it's very difficult to be um, proportional, especially because A, the language that we use when we call out people, in order to be effective, it needs to have some degree of virality. But as you have learned um, in the past, whether a post becomes viral also depends on its ability to make you feel something enough to share it. In this case, in most cases, the best way to get your um, post very viral is through outrage, through anger, which is the most shareable emotion. We want to make you feel outraged in order to get the clicks, for the likes, for the shares, even if those might not be the most accurate version of the things that happen. But B, it also applies because of the nature of the case. So if you take a look at convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein, it is effective and proportional, but there is concern that arises when there's like a rush to judge people for unclear facts. And one of the worst examples of this is what happened to August Ames. So if you don't know who she is, uh, this is content warning for self-harm and suicide. In 2017, she tweeted that she refused to shoot a scene with a man who starred in gay porn. And she was called a homophobe. She was um, called a bunch of really mean things. And the gravity of the backlash, and some would say cyberbullying, 
led her to ending her own life. And there was never any real indication that she was intentionally homophobic or if she was just misinformed. The last thing to consider is that probably we may have an outdated idea of proportionality. Because as much as we may be reliant on laws, a lot of those laws are not able to tackle the full scope of damage that victims go through. There are things that cannot be quantified. Is serving 8 to 12 years already proportional when a victim will have to go through a lifetime of PTSD? We're not sure. Therefore, we can say that victims wanting to quote-unquote cancel their abusers online or in other ways is probably their way of making things proportional when the legal systems fail to account for it. This argument only works best under the assumption that nothing will ever be enough as punishment for problematic people and harassers. So we have to ask, when does punishment stop for the people who have done wrong? Because it's easy to say that it should be when a person apologizes and is forgiven, but there is a complication because apologies can look like a lot of things, and forgiveness can also be coerced in some points, right? Notes apologies or non-apologies, for example, are very common online. If you've seen what notes apologies are, it's basically when they type down on their iPhones and then post a screenshot, and most of the time, these things don't go well. They're very ingenuine, they're very uh, filled with lies, right? This is where it's important to note that the difference between a genuine apology and a non-apology is that a non-apology is usually just an attempt for damage control. A lot of apologies are not really apologies, but attempts to lessen potential punishment or even remove any accountability from the self. People often do the latter, which is why quote-unquote redemption often does not happen for people because even if they apologize, the motive behind it is not genuine. I think that there should be a chance for reintegration. You can end up forgiving someone but also holding them accountable. Dan Harmon, for example, sexually harassed community writer Megan Gans. And Harmon went on his podcast, Carmen Town, and gave what Gans called a masterclass in how to apologize and was publicly forgiven by her. So I think that you can, and in some cases you should forgive. But you don't need to re-establish a relationship. In other cases, the victims are ready to have a relationship of sorts, but restorative justice allows that it be an option, but it doesn't require it, right? So it also calls on the accused to not only acknowledge the behavior, but also to pledge in actual concrete ways how he or she will do better, and also acknowledge that there was a harm that was done. So redemption does not absolve them of responsibility. True accountability is one that leaves room for the chance, even if that chance is very, very slim, that people can change their minds and help advance society. But I must add, however, that it should be up to the victim to forgive, and there's no responsibility to forgive. There should only be a possibility. The burden should be on the part of the perpetrator of the abuse to change. Given how complicated everything can be and how thin the lines are, is being safe from cancel culture even possible? Or do we have to just accept that one day we will have our reckoning as people? Because I've seen so many instances where people are being canceled online for beliefs they've held in the past or tweets they've written when they were less knowledgeable about the world and were openly saying the n-word for example people are also being cancelled for not being woke enough or not speaking out on every single issue when it arises and honestly i find this very tiring so personal anecdote i actually stopped being very vocal on twitter 
because there was a social pressure to always be loud and angry. I used to be a very loud and angry person, and I, I, I still am. I just no longer display it to the rest of the world because I feel like the persona I have ended up creating online placed an pressure on myself that was, that was no longer healthy and I was no longer able to keep up with. Not to mention as well that there was also an issue of me receiving death threats and being doxxed in my own home. But, you know, that's another story. And a lot of the times, I do help, just not in a way that I used to. I no longer speak out as often and I just do things in the background like donate, right? And it's sad that the, the persona I made online and the pressure that came with it gave such a high expectation that I couldn't reach and therefore just discouraged me altogether. And there was a while where I, I was just really struggling to balance my mental health and trying to do what I can to help others, right? But again, that's also another issue that I feel like people should resolve personally and I'm still in the process of resolving personally. But besides this and besides the reckoning that people have to go through, how liable also are people in proximity because there's also an issue on Twitter, for example, where they have block bots, if you're aware of what those are. There are instances where if you have people following Donald Trump, for example, you can just hire a block bot or get that extension and suddenly you will block every single person that follows that particular account you don't agree with. Thereby, you're also kind of canceling the person who is following because of the association. Of course, this is not always a good thing, but it could also be something valid if you consider that you're doing it for your mental health or you no longer want to interact with these people. And that's probably fine, right? But we have to also make a distinction between complicity and ignorance. Because how complicit really are followers of certain celebrities for their bad behavior? Does buying makeup from Jeffree Star also make you a racist? I would say no, but... You can argue that you are complicit because the money you give bad people helps them fund their bad behavior. And being neutral is obviously taking the side of the oppressor. Should the response therefore be to cancel these supporters of these people? The instinct is to say yes, despite failing to understand that sometimes people are just unaware of things that are happening. And maybe it would be best to inform the person of the bad behavior of the person they support before you decide whether or not they're being cancelled. But, again, the cancel culture has run amok that people just jump straight to their instincts as opposed to going through processes that I think should be taken. So if I see someone following someone problematic or having bad mindset, my first instinct isn't to cancel that person but to try to reach out, educate, or at least, if not directly them, reach out to people who are in proximity to them, etc. But we can't always expect people to go through this, and it could be tempting to just cancel them altogether. And that, I guess, can be fine as well if you're doing it for yourself and for reasons you have no obligation to explain to others. Does canceling the supporters of problematic people help solve anything? I think it's a little bit unclear. Like, you can say yes, you can also say no. Like, yes, because it raises awareness for the issue, but at the same time, no, because it might create echo chambers, and this is evident in the polarization between DDS and the rest of rational society that I'm a part of, you know? Uh, it, it also further radicalizes the groups that you want to weaken. It does a change the structures that cause people to be like Weinstein, like Daryl Yap, etc. It doesn't change the structures that allow them to come about. But you can argue, though, that 
For movements like hashtag MeToo, it was less about you know immediately changing the entire system. It was more about providing victims with safe spaces, and so that that in itself can be considered a victory independent of any outcome. So what's the takeaway? I'd say there's quite a lot to unpack when looking at cancel culture, and even more to unpack when trying to understand it. I think the best we can do is really just acknowledge that both sides of the issue exist. All good people are capable of bad, and some bad people may be capable of good. I think it just all boils down to nuance as well as context and what they do after. It also boils down to the self. People are still free to cancel who they like and feel the way that they do. The same way we still have the right to feel uncomfortable with some aspects of the cancel culture we place on a pedestal. Like any good fan of things, I will be the first to say that it is flawed. Cancel culture is flawed. Animal Crossing is also flawed. People are flawed. We aren't expected to defend everything about the things we like. Because being a rational and progressive individual shouldn't be equivalent to subscribing to a cult. So as always, we hope the things we talked about allowed you to ponder on some points and form opinions on your own. I just hope they're not utterly problematic opinions. So that's it for this episode. If you'll excuse me, I'll go back to playing Animal Crossing until I eventually get cancelled by my Animal Crossing Twitter followers for paying my landlord Tom Nook and being complicit to his capitalist schemes or something. I don't know. Bye!